1: Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today as we revel in wrong think. Now, if you're not sure exactly what that means, like if you're a first-time listener, stick around. I'm hoping I won't scare you off by the time I get to the first break, but, you know, it's possible. I had to accept the fact that this message is not for everybody. It is for people who value truth over their attachment to, you know, political partisanship or sometimes to uh, just their commitment to the status quo. So if it makes you uncomfortable, that is kind of a byproduct of confronting truth or at least trying to think in a clear and independent manner, especially during a time of crisis. But I have long believed that uh, that's the most important duty we have as citizens is to think clearly and independently, particularly during times of crisis. And I'm doing everything in my power to try to uh, persuade people it's okay to question the narratives. It's okay to question the status quo. And it's okay to, uh, to push back as it pertains to your freedoms and my freedoms and our ability to exercise them without uh, undue restrictions. I don't know why I added that undue part in there, but you know I don't want people thinking, oh, it's a free-for-all, Everybody swinging from the chandeliers. I understand what authentic freedom is. And it requires a degree of self-control. It's not. It's not just hedonism. It's not just hey, if you have an itch, scratch it, man. It's you know, it's being able to choose for yourself to act virtuously because your choices are purely voluntary and not the basis of, not based on somebody you know coercing you to do something. So, with that in mind, let's dive right in and talk a little bit about uh, a little official coercion. You know, in the age of cancel culture, it's very clear. There are a lot of people who believe that a student's speech in his or her personal life, that I'm talking their private speech, is still the business of their school administrators. By the way, this is true, uh, as we're starting to see, thanks to cancel culture. um, It's it's also true in a lot of people's uh, professional lives as well. It wasn't so long ago I was telling you about the story of, I think it was a, a coach, a high school football coach, who was fired from his job not because he was out there, you know, making trouble or doing anything wrong. He had simply, maybe it was his wife. No, that was a police chief's wife. Sorry. The coach had posted something that was uh, that was pro-Trump. This was back during the election. And because of that, someone looked up this uh, social media post. Did you know this coach is pro-Trump? That was enough for him to be pushed out. Even though it wasn't done on a school Social media account, it wasn't done on school time. Um, the other story that went with it was uh, the police chief forced out of, uh, out of uh, his job because his wife had posted something that was pro-Trump. See, I know it's very fashionable among those who know what's best. You know, the, the, the orange man is bad and everybody must feel that way. But you have to wonder where are the limits of their power? Where's the limit of their control over people's speech? And here's an example that might uh, might drive the point home a little bit further. It has to do with a uh, Pennsylvania public school sophomore. They just identified her by the initials BL. This is an article from Cato.org Public schools can't control students' private speech. Thomas Berry and Stacey Hansen are the authors here. They say BL a high school sophomore at a Pennsylvania public school, didn't make the varsity cheerleading team. So she took to Snapchat to voice her frustrations, posted a picture of herself and a friend holding up their middle fingers, adding a caption with some F-bombs. I'll admit, that's pretty juvenile. But when the picture was brought to the attention of the cheer coaches, B.L. was suspended from the junior varsity cheerleading team for the year. Through her parents, B.L. sued the school district for violating her First Amendment rights arguing that the school could not punish her for off-campus speech that did not occur in a school-sponsored forum or bear any mark of approval or endorsement by the school. Both the district court and the Third Circuit ruled in BL's favor. The school district appealed to the Supreme Court, which granted review. So now the Cato Institute joins the Pacific Legal Foundation and satirist PJ O'Rourke in a merits brief in supporting BL at the Supreme Court. And it says, we argue that the distinction between on-campus and off-campus speech must not be blurred to expand school's power at the expense of students' First Amendment rights. BL was punished for speech that was created off-campus on the weekend from her personal phone and social media account. As the Third Circuit correctly explained, allowing such speech to fall under the disciplinary purview of public schools would give school administrators the power to quash student expression deemed crude or offensive, which far too easily metastasizes into the power to to censor valuable speech and legitimate criticism. The article goes on to say such an expansion of school authority would not only harm students but also infringe on parents' rights to raise and discipline their children as they see fit. Further, it would displace law enforcement's responsibility to investigate behavior that poses a threat or otherwise violates the law. Instead, schools should only be permitted to regulate students' speech when the speech occurs in a place or time controlled and supervised by school staff and only when necessary to address address rather objective disruption of the learning environment. The article goes on to say over 50 years ago in Tinker v. Des Moines, public schools were instructed that students do not shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Likewise, it's time to remind schools that students do not shed their constitutional rights outside those gates either public schools should not be able to monitor student speech 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and suppress student speech merely because they disagree with the message. And so they say we urge the court to reaffirm its longstanding protections for First Amendment rights and affirm the Third Circuit. And apparently the Supreme Court will hear arguments in the Mahanoy Area School District v. BL on April 28th. I think I'll be keeping an eye on this one. I mean, look, I, I'll admit, it's bad behavior. It is bad behavior to sit there and flip off, you know, the camera and drop F-bombs. And, you know, she's probably reacting because she's disappointed. This is a, it's a juvenile thing to do. But you're dealing with juveniles. But I think there has to be a very clear distinction drawn between things that take place on school property, on school time, under school control or direction, versus a kid popping off on her own. Hopefully it doesn't. I mean, come on, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's that's not t- too difficult to understand, because the question that follows, you know, is if that's not the case. If well, no no, no Brian, you know this is this is something that uh, is a very serious disruption. Why she's she's challenging their authority? Aha, <laughs> that's I think that's probably <laughs> that's probably the uh, the real reason for why you know she was being punished. Why? The, how dare you stand up to us? How dare you? assert yourself can you see where that would creep into other areas of your life i don't know maybe maybe i'm dead wrong and maybe i'm somewhat of a fanatic for not wanting to be manipulated or otherwise saddled and controlled and you know ridden with someone whipping me with their riding crop hey you know some people are into that i'm not i'm not going to go out of my way to make anybody else's life more difficult but uh, by, the same, by the same token, I am not going to allow someone to step into my life and make it more difficult. So the line has to be drawn somewhere. And for crying out loud, this is about to go to the Supreme Court. You know, I sincerely hope that uh, the Supreme Court upholds what the third district court said. I hope the school district gets slapped down and can focus on what its real job is. And that's not, you know, punishing unapproved thought. But rather teaching you know the, the basics of you know what's required to be a, an educated individual, or at least have the, the basic tools to go out there and be a productive member of society. I still, for the record, believe if you want to be a truly productive member of society as in a thinking, reasoning, capable person who can solve problems rather than just sit there swatting at the symptoms, you need more than just a public school education. You can get some good stuff there. Don't get me wrong. But what you need is a classical, liberal arts education. That well-rounded, personal education that is a lifelong pursuit. And it's not something that requires you, you know, dropping everything and, you know, you've got to find yourself back in a classroom. It means being willing to set aside a little bit of your leisure time each day or each week to read things that are above your head, to read things that help you to organize your thinking and that cause you to become a better person. Why? Because you've been exposed to what some of the greatest minds in recorded history have had to say. What if they were wrong about something? Well, they were human beings, so the chances are very good they were wrong about things. doesn't mean that they didn't have something of value to offer, even if they were wrong about some things. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: As we engage in wrong think, I hope you're finding yourself becoming more and more comfortable with the idea that you don't have to march in lockstep with the crowd. In fact, there's sometimes a a peculiar comfort that comes from being a little bit out of step with other people. It's not that you're better. It's just that you realize you're taking ownership for your worldview. You're taking ownership for your life. And really, that's a good thing. Any kind of personal freedom requires a corresponding degree of personal responsibility. And this is one of the things that I think a lot of us have overlooked for much of our lives. It's why people are easily swayed by things that generate fear or anger, you know, in in the news cycle. I'm one who will actually recommend if if you really want to get a sense of, you know, what the world is really like, sometimes the best thing you can do is unplug from the matrix, shut off the media. And yes, that would include shutting off people like me. And just live your life for a couple of days away from the screens away from the electronic devices, away from all the information being blasted at you 24/7. It doesn't take very long before the world starts to look a lot more normal. And the longer you're away from that uh, daily fear delivery system, the more easy it is to recognize when someone is is beaming, you know, uh, thoughts or beaming ideas at you that are designed to manipulate you to get you fearful and angry. Both of which uh, those, those states of mind make us easier to manipulate. This is one of the reasons I think identity politics and, and you know critical race theory and intersectionality have become all the rage you know on various college campuses and actually even even throughout corporate America and it's starting to creep into our public schools too. I mean, why else would we see people wanting to tear down statues which represent actual history, which, yes, had flaws and people with flaws but it's not enough to learn from those flaws it's you know we have to we have to tear them down and deny that they ever existed that is dangerous that's that's treading into thought control territory and it's not a good place you want to you want to see the best examples of where that happened you know those those piles of books that were being burned in 1930s germany that's a good example of it the soviets were masters at making things and people disappear just like the Ministry of Truth would do in 1984, as have other totalitarian regimes. Never a good idea to allow the absolute erasure of history. It separates people from their ability to, to contextually arrive at where, how did we arrive where we are, to understand how we got here in the first place. As I uh, go about looking for for great content to share with you on a daily basis, intellectual takeout is always one of the places where I like to stop. Now, I've got a little section on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. It's called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. You'll find links there to intellectual takeout, among other uh, news and commentary aggregators. Strongly recommend this. I have a piece in front of me here from Annie Holmquist, Teaching History Without Identity Politics. Listen to what she has to say here. Our children need more history and civics is a regular rallying cry for those who want to see America returned to its moral and common sense roots. Now that a greater emphasis on history and civics is needed is evident from the nation's report card, which finds only 24% of American high school seniors are proficient in civics, while only 12% of them are proficient in American history. These earnest requests and dire statistics have been met by recent bipartisan efforts to beef up the curriculum in these areas in the form of the Civics Secures Democracy Act. Sorry, I'm just looking to see what the, uh, the acronym of this, I nah, I can't really come up with anything. It's a bill sponsored by Senators John Cornyn of Texas and Chris Coons of Delaware. The bill is part of an extraordinary push by academics, politicians, foundations, and research centers to reemphasize civics in elementary and secondary education. That's according to Mark Bauerlein in a piece for City Journal. Now, Annie Holmquist says, only things might not be as rosy as they seem. Organizers present the roadmap as bipartisan and balanced, but she says if you scan the details, you'll find it relentlessly focuses on group identity, access and exclusion, agency and dissent, and diversity. So while reforms, these reforms may be well-meaning, the fact is, is that progressives will outnumber conservatives 50 to 1 when the new curriculum is implemented. So in other words, while one may start out with the goal of teaching about George Washington, John Adams, and other figures in Western civilization, such efforts will soon be replaced by seeing everything from the supposedly repressed perspectives of minorities, women, or sexually divergent individuals. Indeed, efforts at such politically correct changes are evident even at the state level, an example of which is seen in the state of Minnesota, where updated social studies standards emphasize identity politics more than key historical events. So just as an aside, that's less about teaching kids history and more about indoctrinating proper attitudes. According to whom? Well, according to those who are trying to use the system to get kids to think this is the most important thing. Why, was there no, why wasn't there more transsexual representation during the D-Day invasion? That's the kind of stuff they're going to be focused on. Annie Holmquist asks, but are these popular, politically correct, or woke ways of teaching history true to history? And she asks, what exactly is the goal of history education? Ben Franklin offered some insights on this goal in his 1749 pamphlet, Proposals Relating to the Education of Youth in Pennsylvania. History, Franklin wrote, should be made a constant part of students' reading because it provides a platform for all kinds of subjects. Franklin lists geography, ancient customs, and government as some of these subjects. But he also believes that history is a good platform on which to present the all-important issues of religion and morality. History shows the advantages of temperance, order, frugality, industry, perseverance, etc., writes Franklin. Indeed, the general, the, natu- the general natural tendency of reading good history must be to fix in the minds of the youth deep impressions of the beauty and usefulness of virtue of all kinds, public spirit, fortitude, etc. Now, clearly, these aren't the types of virtues taught in the present— and future woke history courses. So how do parents circumvent this progressive teaching of history? Annie Holmquist says some parents may choose to homeschool, selecting their own history curriculum. A recent report released from the U.S. Census Bureau finds that the share of households engaged in homeschooling has increased to over 11% in the last year. But such a path isn't an option for every family. Thus, be it in traditional institutional schooling or education at home, She says, I encourage parents to instill a love of history in their children by reading fiction books. The G.A. Henty books are an excellent place to start, as are the following selections from Intellectual Takeout's Great Books list. And listen to these suggestions. From kindergarten through third grade, you can have your kids reading things like The Courage of Sarah Noble by Alice Daglish. Little House in the Big Woods and Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths by Edgar and Ingrid Dolaire. Black Ships Before Troy by Rosemary Sutcliffe. When you get to the 4th to 6th grade, books like The Witch of Blackbird Pond, Carry On Mr. Bowditch, by the way, that's an excellent book, Across Five Aprils, Amos Fortune, and Caddy Woodlawn. 7th to 8th grade, this is where the kids could be reading things like The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. (gasps) Yes, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain Little Women by Louisa May Alcott Johnny Tremaine by Esther Forbes A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens and one of my personal favorites The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom Ninth grade Have the kids read things like Julius Caesar from William Shakespeare The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe and To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee Annie Holmquist says, reading classical historic fiction like the above not only introduces children to a more traditional view of history, but it also makes the past come alive and seem less like an endless march of monotonous dates and names. She says, children who learn history as an intriguing story will come to love the past and mine it for the lessons it holds for us today. The child who approaches history in such a way will also all the more quickly recognize the dangerous path we're heading down with our fixation on diversity and identity. Yes, there is a link to this article in the show notes. You'll find it at the thebryanhideshow.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are
1: back. I spent a fair amount of time on this show. Um, Not so much commiserating and and, and complaining about uh, the media, they're bad. I do complain a little bit, I admit it. But uh, more importantly, I like to point out there are alternatives and there's a very good chance you are catching this program as kind of an alternative to a lot of what the mainstream media is is doing. Um, this is, you know, a program that is broadcast across uh, the Loving Liberty Radio Network, the Fed by Ravens Media Network, um, other different uh, streaming networks and, and radio networks across America, as well as available in podcast form. I'm very grateful to live in a time when technology is such that I can do an end run around the gatekeepers of truth, you know, the, the journalists and the information organs that used to tell us everything that they deemed, you know, okay for us to know. It's great to be able to bypass that. And yet there's a lot of hand-wringing. There's a little bit of a media freakout going on about how these media bypasses are taking place. And, and by the way, Substack is becoming one of those platforms where where people can freely write and publish and and speak and <clears throat> do so independent of the control of some centralized corporation i don't know what the exact numbers are now but you look at most of the major mainstream media companies in america and you can eventually trace the ownership or the the control of a particular company back to just a handful of corporations that that ultimately own these these companies there's many of them are subsidiaries So when something like Substack comes up, which is, I believe, crowdfunding is is one of the ways that they do what they do, the journalists who write on Substack, essentially they appeal directly to their readers and say, look, if you find value in what I'm doing, please consider supporting me. And this is the kicker. And maybe I'm projecting when I say this, so if, if I'm wrong, look, I'm wrong, but my perception is the people who go to Substack People like Glenn Greenwald, for instance, one of the preeminent journalists in the world. I mean, he was, he was writing for The Guardian in the UK. He, was, he started The Intercept and then quit The Intercept when they started trying to, to censor him, uh, when he was uh, writing pieces that were not favorable to the powerful, or at least the powerful individuals that, that they wanted to protect. So he went to Substack, and now he writes to publish the truth without having to be fitted for some kind of a corporate gag. And I don't think it's about getting rich. I don't think it's, well, I went this way because I can make buku bucks by doing this. In fact, I would guess a lot of the people who go the Substack route probably are taking a significant cut in pay. I think of my friend Eric Peters, an extremely gifted commentator and writer who could be making big bucks if he were willing to sell his soul to one of the you know, big media companies who would gladly put him to work. But when you have principles, sometimes it's okay to, to take a lesser standard of living for the privilege of being able to speak the truth. And that's my perception is Substack offers a way to speak the truth, to challenge the narrative without having to, to go through and obtain permission from all the different media gatekeepers. Got a couple of articles that I'd like to share with you. Um, I want to start with this one from Charles C.W. Cook. The hand-wringing media freakout over Substack. He says, the first rule of Monopoly Club is that nobody else is allowed to be in Monopoly Club. How else to understand the growing resistance to Substack, an online service that permits writers to bypass the traditional media and distribute newsletters and articles directly to subscribers? He says, what better way to understand it than is the white-hot antipathy toward an upstart rival? Over the last few weeks, the eyes of the establishment have been focused on the platform and its renegade users, and boy have those eyes found it wanting. Summing summing up the opprobrium, Dr. Sarah Roberts of UCLA described Substack as a dangerous threat to traditional news media, a threat to journalism, and incredibly dangerous and damaging to the fourth estate, by which she means journalism, which she suggested is one of the few fail-safes against anti-democratic maneuvers. Please, Roberts demanded, do not write or pay for Substack. I have to say it, I believe it's dangerous. And why is it dangerous? Charles C.W. Cook asks. Well, that depends. In Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources newsletter, CNN's Carrie Flynn proposed recently Substack is a problem because it provides a living for figures who attack journalists or stoke fears about transgender people and do so without the type of editorial oversight she'd prefer. In an article from last year, the Columbia Journalism Review complained Substack's users are too white, male, and conservative to need such an outlet because they've already been well served by existing media power structure. And in a piece published on Substack itself, the baseball writer Craig Calcaterra groused that some of the site's other users, not him of course, are engaged in some pretty objectionable discourse, which of course is the real issue here. Judging by the panicked language that they so often use to describe the industry's parvenues, the traditional media figures seem to be horrified by the mere existence of venues over which they are unable to exert control. Tally Arbell, an AP tech writer, worried earlier this year that Apple and Google had left open a major loophole for unapproved speech, podcasts. I Just wait till our bill finds out about bars. <laughs> Writing last month about the voice chat app, Clubhouse, The New York Times digital gossip columnist Taylor Lorenz fretted wildly about its freewheeling and unpredictable nature, which Lorenz complained was leading to users having unconstrained and unfettered conversations. I better grab the smelling salts. I'm feeling a bit faint. At pointer, meanwhile, Christina, Tardagula and Harrison Montes griped that because Clubhouse does not keep recordings for their benefit, there's no path to accountability and no way to prove that someone said anything controversial at all. And Charles C.W. Cook says, which forces one to ask accountability to whom? He says, I'm sure Christina Tardagula and Harrison Montes are nice enough people but he says, as a private citizen who may or may not choose to use a given tech product, I owe them precisely nothing. At times, listening to our self-appointed arbiters of acceptable speech agonize over the behavior of people with whom they have no meaningful connection can be a little bit like listening to old-school Soviet commissars trying to work out how and where the peasants keep meeting in secret and what they're talking about when they do. There's a great deal to like about having a free press and there's a great deal to like about the constitutional guarantees that keep it in business. And yet, one cannot help but notice that many within its ranks see their institution less as one of the numerous protected by the First Amendment and more as an anointed caste in possession of a unique mandate. All hail the newspaperman's burden. Now, Charles C.W. Cook says, Critics of the censorious manner in which America's large corporations have begun so habitually to behave are often told that if they wish to effect change, well, they should build their own outlets. And so they should. But he says one might be forgiven for suspecting that the purveyors of this advice are not entirely on the level, given that when such services do hit the market, the same people immediately rush to marginalize them. Consider by way of sterling example the pernicious behavior of CNN's Oliver Darcy a man who ostensibly covers the media beat for his network, but in practice is paid to damage his employer's competition. Like a turn-of-the-century oil baron complaining mawkishly that his adversary's rigs are unsafe, Darcy spends his days engaging in, quote, analyses of CNN's rivals as a pretext for recommending they should be deplatformed. Not since the days of Baptists and bootleggers has rank self-interest been so easily or so enthusiastically characterized as altruistic virtue. And so it's come to pass that each and every time a new outlet pops up, the old guard tries promptly to strike it down. Information is power. Those that provide information are powerful. And powerful people rarely relinquish their positions without a fight. Surely the last few decades, or survey the last few decades rather, and you will notice that while the objections to innovation may vary, the message is always at heart the same. The old is good, the new is bad. Those guys are risky. Listen to us instead. All I can say is, from the standpoint of having choices, I would rather risk there being you know, choices out there that are utter garbage. And arguably there are some that are utter garbage. Let them compete, though. Let them wrestle in the court of public opinion. Because I have confidence that the best ideas, the truth itself, will eventually come to the surface. It will prevail. It doesn't need to be silenced. It doesn't need to be bound and gagged just in case somebody accidentally believes something they shouldn't. So to me, this is just more evidence that we need to own our own worldview. And I'm very grateful to be a part of, a very small part of this movement of alternative media and alternative platforms that, for the moment, knock on wood, are beyond the reach of the deplatforming, you know, crew and the cancel culture that would like to, you know, monopolize whatever narrative they're trying to, to push on us. I'm grateful to offer an alternative. And I say that with the understanding that, you know, I, I tell you what I believe, I pass along information that I think is good and thought-provoking, But you, of course, are under no obligation whatsoever to believe it. The decision of what to do with this information, that's entirely up to you. And maybe it involves I turn off the volume and I find something else to listen to. That's a risk I have to take.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right,
1: welcome back to the show. I'm going to be spending just a little more time talking about journalism and journalists. And I want to share with you some excerpts from a marvelous essay from Glenn Greenwald. If you haven't subscribed to his Substack account, you really should. You should consider it. And I say this only from the standpoint of Glenn Greenwald is one of the very few people out there who still challenges, still speaks truth to power. He challenges the powerful. It's it's put him in some very dangerous situations, particularly in Brazil, where he and his spouse live. Um, uh, President Bolsonaro is uh, not a fan of Glenn Greenwald and has, has been pretty open in threatening him. Because Glenn is more committed to speaking the truth than he is to pleasing those in power. Contrast that with much of the American mainstream media, and you'll see a vast difference. When is the last time you heard people in, po- people in the media challenge those in power? I know, you got to go back to, well, uh, when was Trump president? That's all they did. Yep, with Trump. But they wouldn't challenge others who were in power, and you know, therein lies the problem. Glenn Greenwald has a great article here about how journalists attack the powerless and then self-victimize in order to bar criticisms of themselves. Now, this may rub some people the wrong way because this is focusing in part on uh, USA Today and the New York Times and the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal. It, it's it's focusing on how these major news organs <clears throat> are being weaponized to, to attack people who were either participating in or just there in Washington, D.C. on the 6th when a few hundred people stormed the Capitol and forced their way inside. I know, it's the, the worst thing ever to happen in American history, except that narrative has fallen apart like a soup sandwich. It's, it's just not holding up. And this is seen in the fact that prosecutors, when they're told, well, produce the evidence that this person is, uh, is you know, the, where's the probable cause this person is likely engaged in the crime you're accusing them of? And prosecutors are quietly dropping charges and walking things back. They're using the law to punish people, even though they're pretty sure they couldn't get a conviction. Just having someone's name drug through the mud. Their picture in the paper of them being led away in handcuffs. I mean, that's enough to plant a pretty, uh, pretty poison seed in most people's minds. Greenwald says the Daily the Daily newspaper USA Today is the second most circulated newspaper in the United States. Only the Wall Street Journal has higher circulation numbers. On Sunday, the paper published and heavily promoted a repellent article complaining that defendants accused in the Capitol riot January sixth crowdfund their legal fees online, using popular payment processors and an expanding network of fundraising platforms, despite a crackdown by tech companies. Now that's interesting news, okay, and that's in and of itself is not so bad, but he points out this story provided a roadmap for snitching on how these private citizens, who were charged with serious felonies by the U.S. Justice Department, but as yet convicted of nothing, are engaged in a game of cat and mouse, in the words of the article, as they spring from one fundraising tool to another, in order to avoid bans on their ability to raise desperately needed funds to pay their criminal lawyers to mount a vigorous defense. In other words, the only purpose of the article, headlined, Insurrection Fundraiser, Capital Riot Extremists, Trump Supporters Raise Money for Lawyer Bills Online, was to pressure and shame tech companies to do more to block these criminal defendants from being able to raise funds for their legal fees and to tattle to tech companies by showing them what techniques these indigent defendants are using to raise money online. Now, you don't have to agree with the people who were rioting at the Capitol. But that whole presumption of innocence, that whole presumption that they're going to be given due process... I think that that has to come into play at some point. Greenwald points out the USA Today reporters went far beyond merely reporting how this fundraising was being conducted. They went so far as to tattle to PayPal and other funding sites on two of those defendants, Joe Biggs and Dominic Pizzola, and then boasted of their success in having their accounts terminated. This is what USA Today wrote. As of Wednesday afternoon, the Biggs fundraiser was listed as having received $52,201 dollars. Pozzola had received $730. Big's campaign disappeared from the site shortly after USA Today inquired about it. Friday, a USA Today reporter donated to Pazola's fundraiser using Stripe. Stripe told USA Today it does not comment on individual users. A USA Today reporter was able to make a $1 donation to Pazola's fundraiser using Venmo, a payment app owned by PayPal. After being alerted by USA Today, Venmo removed the account. Soon, a PayPal account took its place. PayPal caught that and removed it, too. Now, Glenn Greenwald says, Wow, what brave and intrepid journalistic work, speaking truth to power and standing up to major power centers by working as little police officers for tech giants to prevent private citizens from being able to afford criminal lawyers. Clear the shelves for the imminent Pulitzer, he says. Whatever you think about the Capitol riot... He reminds us everyone has a right to a legal defense and to do what they can to ensure they have the best legal defense possible, especially when the full weight of the Justice Department is crashing down on your head even for nonviolent offenses, which is what many of these defendants are charged with due to the politically charged nature of the investigation. He says the right to a vigorous defense has always been a central cause of his as a lawyer and a journalist, and it used to be a central cause of legal or of left-wing groups like the ACLU years ago. That was the same principle that caused then-candidate Kamala Harris to solicit donations last summer that went to protesters charged with violent rioting. A federal prosecutor was recently referred for disciplinary procedures for publicly threatening to charge some of these Capitol protesters with sedition, one of the gravest crimes in the U.S. Code. That is how grave the legal jeopardy is faced by these people trying to raise money for lawyers. And he says what makes all of this extra grotesque is that as the Washington Post reported, most of those charged with various crimes in connection with the January 6th Capitol riot including many of those whose charges stem just from their presence inside the capital, not the use of any violence, are people with serious financial difficulties. Not surprising for a country in the middle of a major economic and joblessness crisis where neoliberalism neoliberalism, and global trade deals have destroyed entire communities and de- and industries for decades. It's interesting too, as I look at the article uh, from USA Today, It almost seems like they're gloating. Nearly 60% of the people facing charges related to the Capitol riot showed signs of prior money troubles, including bankruptcies, notices of eviction or foreclosure, bad debts or unpaid taxes over the past two decades, according to a Washington Post analysis of public records for 125 defendants with sufficient information to detail their financial histories. Yeah, they're just looking for some dirty laundry to hang up and show everybody, look, those are pee stains on those sheets. All right. The group's bankruptcy rate, 18%, was nearly twice as high as that of the American public, the Post found. A quarter of them had been sued for money owed to a creditor, and one in five of them faced losing their home at one point, according to court filings. Now, Glenn Greenwald says this USA Today article is just another example of journalists at major media outlets abusing their platforms to attack and expose anything other than the real power centers which compose the ruling class and govern the U.S., the CIA, the FBI, the security state agencies, Wall Street, Silicon Valley oligarchs. To the extent these journalists pay attention to those entities at all, and they barely ever do, is to venerate them, it's to venerate them rather, and mindlessly disseminate their messaging like stenographers, not investigate them like investigating people who actually wield power. Or actually, he says, investigating people who actually wield power is hard. So instead, the primary target of the Trump-era media is has become private citizens and people who wield no power, yet who these media outlets believe must have their lives ruined because they have adopted the wrong political ideology. So many corporate journalists now use their huge megaphones to humiliate and wreck the lives of ordinary private citizens who they judge to have bad political opinions, meaning opinions that deviate from establishment liberalism orthodoxies which these media outlets exist to enforce. And he gives some great examples here. CNN confronting an old woman on the front lawn of her Florida home for the crime of having used her little Facebook page to promote a pro-Trump event that CNN claimed was engineered by Russians. I mean, for crying out loud, the same network threatened to expose the identity of another private citizen who created an anti-CNN meme unless he begged and promised not to do it again. And HuffPost doxed the real-life name of an anonymous critic of Islam, whose spouted views Glenn says I find repellent and triggered a boycott of her family's business. Look, the bottom line is what passes for journalism today is uh, is really just na- it's, it's uh, narrative control. That's all it is. And if they're not calling the people into power, you know, into question and calling them on the things that they're doing that are harmful, but instead focusing on punishing those who deviate from the political orthodoxy, Well, I would say they're not exactly doing you a favor in the kind of information that they're sharing. Feel free to disagree, but that's how I see it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.